welcome to Let's Talk Robotics. I'm your host, Nikki Rousseau, CEO and founder of Exaptica Robotics, company based in Melbourne. It gives me great pleasure to have Associate Professor Yolanda Stringers with me today. Yolanda is the digital sociologist and human-computer interaction scholar investigating the sustainability and gender effects of digital, emerging, and smart technologies. At Monash University, she leads the energy future theme in the Emergency Technology Research Lab, which undertakes critical interdisciplinary and international research into the social, cultural, and experimental dimensions of the design, use, and futures of new and emerging technologies. Yolandi, welcome and thanks very much for joining me today. Thanks for having me on the show. It's a, it's it's quite a um, complex uh, introduction of what you do. Um, you've had a very very interesting career in that you're not just academic. You've you've worked in industry as well. What have been highlights for you? Yeah, I think yeah, it has been a very uh, mixed sort of an exciting career going through different domains, and I've sort of transitioned starting out in the sustainability and the energy space as a social scientist and now very much firmly in the IT kind of disciplines and fields, still with my sociology expertise, um, but also branching into new areas uh, and thinking about now much more about gender and, and, and bias and ethical concerns in the development of emerging technologies like AI so it's hard to kind of single out any particular highlights. Um, there is one, though, that I would certainly mention, and that is um, the co-authored book that um, my colleague Jenny Kennedy and I published last year with MIT Press called The Smart Wife. Uh, and that was just um, a culmination of the work that I've been doing on many years, um, also with Jenny, on uh, emerging, sorry, the um, the gender effects, really, of of having digital voice assistants and robots and various other devices coming into our lives that look and, and sound like women. Um, and, of course, the title of the book gives the premise away, which is that so many of these technologies that are coming into our lives um, hark back to this stereotypical, uh, stereotypical idea of the, the 1950s housewife. And that was something that Jenny and I were particularly concerned about and wanted to draw attention to and also propose alternatives to in that work. So, uh, yeah, that, that was a recent highlight. Oh, listen, I'm so glad you brought up your book because I actually tried to find a copy of it and um, actually read it before we had our interview. But um, is, is it available? Um, it, it's published and where, where can we find copies of it? Yes, it is. It's, it's a, it should be available fairly widely. It's been distributed by Penguin in Australia. So, okay. um, should be pretty easy to get a hand, your hands on a copy and also a lot of libraries now have it as well. So, um, yeah, I can, I can give you details after the chat. Great, great. And I'll put that in the show notes as well because that's, that's, that's definitely a book that I'd be interested in reading. Um, how long, just focusing a little bit on about the book now, how long did it take you to write it up in the research with Jenny? Like, I'm, I'm sure like, there's no lack of material out there for examples of what, what you're talking about. It was actually quite a long process. It started with a grant that I received, um, gosh, a, a long time ago now, um, <laughs> to look, to investigate, again, the sustainability effects of the smart home. Um, and I was working on that with another colleague of mine, Larissa Nichols. But during that project, we really sort of couldn't, couldn't ignore the gender differences and who was interested in smart home technologies and who was installing them and uptaking them and designing them and... Um, using them in the home. So it's, it's generally um, men who are more interested in the sort of smart home builds. Mm -hmm. And that was, that sort of started this path on this gendered journey. I and mean, the other really interesting thing about that project was that we were interviewing people with um, smart home technologies. And when they had a digital voice assistant like Alexa or Google Home, that assistant would actually become part of the conversation and part of the interview. And um, I just found that so fascinating how people were talking to this, you know, female sounding um, device with a, with a female name and female personality. Or, um, and that, that sort of also uh, took me on this pathway. Jenny and I, Jenny was doing related research at the time and we sort of came together around this interest in this topic. And then the, the book itself 
the project of writing the book um, was another task and, and we hired a, a research assistant, Paul Akari, who also helped us with that. But yeah, look, years in the making. Um, it was particularly challenging because we wrote it as a hybrid academic and also public book. So it's meant to have broad public appeal, but it still has the academic integrity. And that, that kind of balance between those two worlds was very challenging and actually took a lot longer than other academic books that I've written in the past. So it took a little bit longer because of that as well. Oh, it's fantastic. Congratulations. As I said, um, I'll definitely be getting a copy of that. And then um, we can do a whole new new uh, podcast just on, on dissecting everything that you've done there. Um, I mean, I, I probably, I'm sort of looking at you as a associate professor thinking you, you're so practiced in writing papers and things. But as you say, if it's got a more academic slant to it, then that's one way of writing it. And, and to the general public, it's a completely different way of phrasing things and just making it easy for us to um, just get lots of information in an easy way. That's right. And you'd think that it would actually make it um, easier to write things in a simpler way and to, you know, use plain language. And But gosh, <laughs> as an academic, it's very hard, let me tell you. You know, trying to, you know, you, you don't be citing somebody um, in the book, we cite lots and lots of people, of course. And um, some of them have written, you know, some of them have devoted their whole careers, their whole lives yeah. to write all of this material, this amazing material around might be feminist theory or it might be, you know, research into AI and gender or whatever, and we might devote one line to them. Now, in academia, that's kind of like, you know, you, you wouldn't do that because it's, yeah. it's, it's very dismissive of, of yeah. this huge body of work. But when you're just writing to a general audience, you know, they don't want to necessarily hear about, somebody's life work um so it's you know, yeah and I mean where, yeah where do you draw the line because I mean you're quoting so many people and referencing it you know you'll be walking around with this tomb of a book to say yeah. yeah because if you don't want to offend anyone I'm sure they they look I think they're probably more than honored that they've even just got a line in your book because it, it's written to the social uh you know the more average audience well, there is there is an awful lot of notes, edit yeah. notes, which yeah. is where, the, where there's an awful lot of references, and and that was our kind of compromise is that um, we tried to acknowledge as many people as we could, um, and then you know it's up to the reader to go and find out further information if they're interested in that, but you know also recognizing that many readers won't be, and we just want to read the no, book just, and leave it yeah. at that. And leave it at that. So, well, anyway, congratulations again. So, as you've mentioned, your research exposes gender biases and ethical concerns in artificial systems such as digital voice assistants, social robots, and smart home technologies. And of course, this is this is sort of technology that is becoming more uh, prevalent in our everyday homes. That no one thinks twice of having a Google Home or Alexa voice assistant, or you know, even a Temi robot that's Alexa integrated, wandering around your home. It's, it's a very fascinating area of research. What have your main learnings and conclusions been um, so far? I think one of the most important things that we found was the many different ways that these devices are being gendered and being gendered in very similar ways. So quite often when we think about um, the gendering of, say, a digital voice assistant, it's usually just the voice that we focus on. Um, or sometimes the name, but usually just the voice. And, and you'll already see that a number of companies have provided uh, different voice options. So you can, you know, not all of them, but Google Home, for example, and Siri, you can change to um, different voices and different accents. But that's only one of the ways that these devices are gendered. Uh, they're also gendered by personality, by the kinds of tasks that they do, uh, sometimes also by their form, not, not necessarily because a robot takes on an you know, an actual, um, you know, models a woman's body, but yeah. they might have, say, feminine curves or other kinds of design features that gender them in a particular way. And typically what we found is that most AI, particularly when it's coming into the home, has taken on um, feminine gendered traits, uh, maybe, uh, you know, kind of a more of a docile or a pleasant personality, which allows them to be seen as less threatening and more accepted into our lives. Also um, gendered in the sense that the, uh, they perform tasks that are typically considered feminised in the, in the home, like, you know, helping you 
sort out your to-do lists and your diaries and mm. with daily tasks and all that kind of stuff. So there's many different kinds of forms of gendering, but I think the most disturbing, that's not really necessarily a problem in and of itself, apart from that it's reinforcing stereotypes about yeah. what role it is, what, what, what jobs women should be responsible for. What I think Jenny and I were most concerned about was the, um, the uniformity displayed in the types of femininity that's been designed into these devices. So we see a very... This, this very sort of subservient form of femininity. This, mm. and, and we see it manifested across many devices uh, and, and many companies, platforms. And that, that was what was really concerning to us. You know, obviously not all women or people are the same. And um, there are many different and diverse ways in which people express their femininity now or, or act mm. in the world as women. But we don't see that diversity even reflected in the... Um, the dominance of this kind of feminine figure that we're seeing coming into our homes now with this technology. Yeah, look, and I think um, we're now in an era of, because of our prevalence of technology and, and how we're using it and as, as integrated as it, as it is in our lives today, because no one, I mean, the first thing we do today is, well, certainly I do, is I reach for my phone when I wake up because I've got family in South Africa, so I check in to make sure nothing's happened overnight that I need to know about. But um, more and more so, this is just common now to have an Alexa or Google chatting to you. So um, it's it's actually of great concern that even in, in this field, the stereotypes are going on and... Well, I mean, in a way, what it's, it's probably a bit big to expect that it's not going to happen here, but it happens in our everyday life. So, you know, where do you pull these people up? So the question is, do you, do you have to speak to the manufacturers of the robots um, or how, how would you address this? Because this is quite a this is quite a huge problem to address. Yeah, so I think there's a couple of different things there. I mean, often this problem gets blamed on bias and you know I think that's part of it we do have um, a prevalence of men in the industries that are designing and building robots and, and AI and voice assistants and what have you and there are some examples where that bias comes through for example um, in the way that uh, these devices respond to certain things like um, uh, when they when they try and make sexual advances or when someone makes sexual advances towards them, sorry. Um, so there's been a lot of kind of critique and, and follow-up around that in the media around that form of bias. But the other more interesting aspect that I think is more difficult to address is that this is actually a very deliberate design decision. So these companies are uh, embedding these feminine attributes into these devices because they know that it makes them likeable it makes them more acceptable to people. It makes them seem less threatening. It conforms with our, you know, existing expectations and stereotypes. And when it comes to sort of advanced technologies that are possibly a little bit concerning to some, that is actually a very clever uh, marketing tactic and tool. Yeah. Uh, so that's where I think we need to really focus our, our efforts is, okay, so how do we achieve that same goal for these companies uh, which is likability, which is, you know, um, making them seem acceptable without building these feminine stereotypes into these devices. And that's that's quite a tricky design challenge, I think, and yeah. one that I think uh, the research community and also companies should be devoting some attention to because I don't think the only way to make these things likable or appealing is just to have these very stereotypical feminine attributes. That seems like quite lazy design to me. Um, and I'm sure there's, well, there is other ways that we can go about that and do that that, that supports diversity. Yeah, and I think it, it assumes your audience is quite simplistic, that they can't see through it. You know, you, um, I deal with a company, iPal, that uh, manufactures um, a little humanoid and it actually comes in a pink and a blue and a silver and um, I, I, it's an American-based company, so the, one of the, the founders is American, and they had severe pushback when they just had a, a robot one colour. So I think it, it, it's um, certainly in the hardware it's reflected there. So this is a boy, this is a girl, and silver is, well, whatever you want it to be. Mm, that's right. And, and that's, <clears throat> that's kind of a common 
approach then, yeah. I guess, is just to provide those options, but they're still quite basic. Yeah, they are. Even, no, definitely. And, and even the idea that we can just sort of erase gender by making robots or devices gender neutral, I think, is quite problematic because um, like I just mentioned earlier you know there's many ways that these devices are gendered so just by saying oh well this device is no longer female it's now gender neutral because we've changed the voice it's like well not necessarily you know what's what are the what are the ways it's responding to what people are saying what's the kind of personality it's putting forward what are the kinds of tasks it's being asked to do and I think if you kind of dig a little deeper often you find that these things are still gendered um, and need a bit of a closer examination. Yeah. Look, I, I, I speak from just dealing with these types of robots. I, I think the manufacturers will have a huge task getting, um, I'm not absolving them for one second that they shouldn't be doing it, but it's it's quite a complex and a tricky area to navigate in terms of how they would do it because um, obviously what, what works for you and I may not work for another woman because we, we're also different in how we're interpreting things, but certainly they can be making more efforts without a doubt. I agree with that. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. I mean, there's, there's also kind of ethical concerns in the idea that um, we should use femininity or anything to make no. devices more likeable and accepting because there are, you know, there are security concerns, there are real privacy concerns around mm-hmm. these devices and also the data that they collect. Uh, so, you know, Jenny and I in the book, we also raise a number of concerns about this approach in general, you know, in, in that um, we should actually be making those uh, those risks quite obvious and apparent to users rather than trying to mask them or cloak them in this likeable femininity. So I guess, you know, above the kind of direct interests of what companies might to achieve mm-hmm. or want to achieve, there there are also some broader ethical questions here I think for um for designers but also for regulators or or, um you know ethical codes that that seek to regulate and govern this sort of sector and this industry as well listen you're touching on a a, like when in our evolving world this is a constant um how is google and facebook where they're tracking us how they're using our information um and I think for a lot of people um, you know, it simply becomes too complex when you're signing this waiver. I agree. If you've got six or seven pages, I think the first thing there is that the six or seven pages, if you can't succinctly say in one page what you're doing with my information, then you can't ask me to sign a waiver that I, as a layman, would actually need a lawyer to go and read to go, yes, I agree to what you can do with my information. I mean, I don't think this is in any way designed to um, protect the uses of the, the, the user, like we ending up being the product. What are, what are your do's and do's, don'ts in terms of technology? What, what are obvious things that, that you think our audience should know? Like these are just things that you should be doing on a regular basis. For users or for? Well, for users, um, as, you know. companies. Well, for no, for users, not the companies have got their own rights and protection. Yolanda, we need to be protected. I feel nothing for the companies. <laughs> now, for users, like you know, like I, I was chatting to a friend of mine. I've got a, a password um, encryption um, app that I use because I don't think there's anything today that you don't need a password for. You you need a username and a password. I I, I just I'm sitting here just thinking if there's anything in the last week that I've actually signed up for that I haven't needed. You don't. You every, Everyone needs a, a username and a password. Um, I mean, I still know people that walk around with a little book and I'm going, oh my, like uh, this just gives me heart palpitations to think that you've got a little book with, with your whole life's um, passwords that if that's gone, like the, you'll be in a world of pain and trouble. <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, it's great, great points and questions. I'm not, I mean, that kind of area is not something I've gone into so much is sort of the personal security and privacy um, considerations or things that people should do. And I'm probably not the best at that myself, to be honest. Oh, I'm no. Not... <laughs> We're all guilty of that. Um, we'll, have a, I... we'll have a talk off, off the podcast. <laughs> we did, though, um, you know, you the, to the point about, you know, the kind of consent, um, you know, the, the privacy statements and stuff that we're asked to sign, we we did um, actually publish a 
paper about this this week at the Computer Human Interaction Design Conference in um, host in Japan, but it's virtual this year, on um, what, what, um, what companies can learn from the feminist sexual consent movement, which of course has been moving much towards these enthusiastic or affirmative mode of, modes of consent where consent is an ongoing process rather than this binary yes or no that you kind yeah. of give at the start of an interaction or when you, when you, you know, install something on your phone and then that's it. And actually seeing, seeing this as a, um, you know, something that can be changed very easily, that can, you know, you're constantly kind of being asked for, um, for feedback or for, um, you know, ways of, of, of affirming that this is something that you are comfortable with when things change around you or when new data is collected or passed on to somebody else. So um, that, that's kind of more the area that I've been focused on is, is what companies can and should be doing around um, improving privacy and security. Great. We'll put a link. Um, is, is that paper um, available for um, yes, the public? Yes, I can, I can yeah. share that with you as well. Yeah, that would be great. We'll put that in the show notes. So, so just speaking of that then, or to that, um, do you think companies are making it easy enough for consumers to be aware of what they're signing, they're saying yes to? I, I must say just from my point of view, if I get a document that goes, yes, agree to this, I mean, even Telstra, when they go, yes, agree to this, you look at all these pages, I skim it, you know, and I'm just going and I'm praying that at some point my interests are being protected as well. Yeah, no, I think it's, a, no, I don't think it's easy enough. No. And I, I don't <laughs> yeah. think it's, I, I think that also there's a number of other things to consider. I mean, one of the examples we propose in the paper is using um, a traffic light system or um, even a safe word. If your device starts to do something that you're unhappy with or, you know, just say it starts downloading something or it starts saying something to you that you don't want to hear or you don't want it to do or say, uh, having a kind of instantaneous way of removing your consent from that process is another way of thinking about this. So not just kind of the initial terms and conditions of um, that govern your use of something, but it's ongoing interactions with you and how those also need to be consentful as well. And and how open do you think companies would be to this? I think it would just be a nightmare for them. They'd just be going, oh, my God, it's much easier just to have, like, she said yes and it's yes in, in, indefinitely and off we go. I think that it's... Um, I don't know how open they are is the, is, the, is the answer to that, I guess. But some of the things that we propose in the paper, they're quite simple, really. I mean like safe word commands for a, um, a Google Home or an Alexa that, you know, you just say a word and it stops doing whatever it's doing. I mean, I don't think that's too complicated for them to implement. So, you know, there, there, there are things that, that don't require huge amounts of mod- modification to, to make happen. You know, the other flip side of this that we, um, we talk about when we're dealing with gendered devices is how they teach us about consent. And by that, I mean consent between people. So one of the areas we look to in the book around this is um, is sex robots and what they allow and don't allow in terms of sexual consent and how that teaches us about consent more broadly in society as well. So there's there's multiple levels to this, I think. Yeah. It's not, we've gone beyond this idea of consent just being about, you know, the terms and conditions of a product when we're interacting with devices that um, are providing us with quite sophisticated information, collecting, you know, huge amounts of data, and also in some cases behaving like or pretending to be a human, uh, that raises all these other levels as well that we need to be thinking about in the design of these devices. Yeah, it is. And it's, a, it's um, you know, if, we, if you just take it back to consent between human beings, how murky and um, not clear that seems to be with some people, then translating that to devices, that's a whole new category if we're not even getting it right in between humans, which should be quite easy. Mm, that's right. So um, it's actually quite, I, I spoke to Professor Rob Sparrow. Do you know him? He's, he's uh, Yes, I do, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. And uh, um, we were talking about the sex robots and a very, very interesting discussion that we had there. And um, we were also 
focused on a, a video clip where they were beating a, a robot um, and people's, you know, their reactions to it. And I have to say, he and I, we we were talking about it and he said, no, he felt nothing. And I said, no, I did. Look, I looked at the dog and I went and stopped beating the dog. Um, I, I think it's just, an, I mean, I posed the question, did he think, um, misusing the technology would then um, make us as human beings misuse human, you know, than actual dog. And he said, no, no, like there was a whole ethical because that's obviously his, his area of expertise is ethics and things around it. But um, certainly I, I think how we, um, I, I, I do think how we handle our devices or anything that does say something about us. That's right. I mean, one of the concerns, for example, in the smart life that we raise is that when we have all these devices that are brought in to do what was traditionally kind of women's work, you know, um, and they all have the same kind of personality and they're all gendered as women, well, that reinforces that stereotype that it is, in fact, women in society more broadly who should be doing that work. So that might not necessarily, it's not as simple as saying, um, that, you know, that's a direct kind of correlation or a direct um, action that, you know, someone uses this device and everybody's just going to start assuming that, well, you know, women should do all this stuff. But it does feed into those stereotypes, does feed yeah. into those biases and, and reinforce those expectations in subtle ways and sometimes in quite overt ways as well. So... Um... I obviously deal in telepresence robots and I was reading a paper that a, a woman in America wrote that um, they're, they're actual do's and don'ts. So um, for a telepresence, um, for the audience, if you don't know what it is, it's, it's a tablet on a movable base and um, you connect it by Wi-Fi and it's got video and you can see. But um, most of the, the telepresence robots don't actually have a back, so they can't see behind them. They can only see forward. The cameras are forward facing. And she wrote that um, don't don't stroke the the robot on its head if it's of a woman speaking I mean it's um don't touch it on on it's the back of its head as well and I mean these seem like such obvious things that you would be saying that why would people be doing this but um clearly these rules need to be articulated yeah I haven't seen that research but I mean it does sort of I guess extend on from the arguments that we make in the smart wife which is that um we need to be treating devices uh, respectfully or robot, robots respectfully you know if they are in the world sort of acting as autonomous beings yeah. now of course we're not worried about the robot itself being offended or you know something bad happening necessarily to the robot uh, but we are worried about what kinds of messages that sends again to society particularly if those devices or those robots are gendered so um and there is there is quite a lot of research that shows that you know the way we treat robots and devices that are take on a kind of human form or personality that does reinforce the ways we also think about and treat um, people and in particular mm. women. So again, not a kind of direct causal relationship, but certainly uh, something that is is filtering into people's thinking and is affecting the ways that they interact in the world yeah look i i, I think it's a given if if i'm dialing in via a telepresence robot to a meeting and a, a colleague of mine pats me on my head or um does any other you you wouldn't think of doing that to me in person so why would you think it's okay to do it when i'm using a piece of technology to dial into a meeting so Yes, I, I do actually think it's important that there's, there are guidelines around it. Mm, and it's not much of a stretch away from, say, what's happened with the digital voice assistance in recent years where um, through critique of the way that those devices responded to sexual harassment and abuse, companies are starting to uh, get them to respond in a different way. Previously, they responded with um, humour or sometimes they were um, happy with the attention so they responded positively to it um, or, or made some sort of, you know, were complicit in it, basically. Um, and because of critique around that potentially feeding into um, similar sort of um, abuse and harassment and violence towards women and people in general as well, 
the companies have responded by saying, no, we're not going to allow that these devices to respond in that way anymore. I mean, they when I say they've they've responded, some of them have responded <laughs> and they've done, you know, I think there's still a bit of a way to go there uh, in, in how these devices respond. But it's been recognised as an issue and a problem um, and that something needs to be done about that as well. So I think that what you're talking about is an extension of those kinds of responsibilities. Yeah. And that's actually really good news, um, Yolande, that if you think about... I mean, where where do you stop? Where do you stop this? This um, it, it's no joke. And I mean, if we look at our, our our stats around domestic abuse in Australia, like that, that's just there's there's nothing to laugh about, or there's no humour to be found in any of this. Um, you would be thinking any device that supports any sort of um, violence or, or those sort of tendencies towards women, they should actually just ban them, as far as I'm concerned. Well, or, or I think the alternative is that these devices get much more clever in how they um, respond and what they allow. You know, again, this comes back to the problem of likability because yeah. um, if the principal goal is to make these devices not offend anyone or not upset anybody, then they're going to be compliant and complicit in whatever anyone says to them. And that was the original kind of design brief, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, uh, but why why not also make you know, give them boundaries, give them respectful kind of limits in terms of what we would expect for human to AI communication. Well, it's a bit of what we expect of human to communicate. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit of a stretch if you think um, really in a day could you go have a conversation that you could potentially um, offend someone just through just sheer just a cultural thing or you you misunderstood something um why would it be that a, a device in your home's got carte blanche that you can say whatever you would wanted and it's not going to get it like we don't live in a world like that nowhere do we operate where there aren't boundaries that we have to have cultural sensitivity um ethnicity like all sorts of things that make us human beings and that make us so special as we are that we can recognize and look at each other and go got facial expressions i can see we are okay we're communicating fine i'm not doing anything that you're going look you're just being an absolute toad and i don't like you um which of course is great for human beings that we've got this we've got this um way to communicate even when we think we're not communicating we are communicating just by our facial expressions and things that's right i mean and there are precedents to this too in the robotics world i mean one of the ones that Jenny and I mentioned in the book is the Tamagotchi robot, which, of course, uh, I don't know if you remember that one, but it, it was a, I think it was a toy, actually. Yeah, a little one, yeah. Yeah, and it, it dies if you yeah. read it. Yeah, that's so right. It, it's gone, you know. Yeah. I mean, it, I think you can revive it, but that's, that's its response. Yeah. Um, so I think it's completely reasonable to suggest that other devices would shut down or become, you know, unavailable for a certain period of time or report you for misbehaviour or something. If uh, if you are mistreating them, um, if we can do it for a toy, surely we can sure, do it for a human being. <laughs> I, I mean, we, we're living in a world gone backwards in some ways that we have to explain this to people. Actually, and I mentioned that Kamagotchi, it takes me way back to my childhood. If I'm not mistaken, you had to feed it and you had to take care of it and That's right. you had yeah, to that sleep. That's, That's right. it. <laughs> if, you and, if you didn't look after it as it was, you know, as was prescribed, um, then yes, it would it would unfortunately die. It will die. You've got a dead robot on your hand here, my friends. Yeah. And I think the whole the um the whole premise around it was that if you were thinking, I mean, this is a bit tongue-in-cheeky, if you're thinking of having children, then have it this it'll come up Kamagotchi robot to to sort of get you into what is the responsibility of looking after another human being Mm. and you know I think that's an important connection to make with digital voice assistants too because children are increasingly interacting with them in their homes so again another great reason to set boundaries and expectations around the behavior that we would expect from people when they're interacting with these devices and vice versa you know um, of course these devices are uh, they're very careful in what they say to us, but we also need to be careful in what we say to them and, and then what that teaches, um, not just children, but everybody about respectful interaction. Yeah, of course, there's accountability. You can't just, uh, just because it's um, artificial intelligence, just say, because in a way what you're feeding it is what it's going to regurgitate at the other end at some point in time. So be aware of that. That's right. So, 
What do you think needs to happen to improve gender bias and imbalances in the um, AI and robotics community or industries? Yeah, so one of, the, one of my, um, I guess, passions is to bring the social sciences and the humanities more closely into the sphere of AI and technology design. One of the reasons I think that it has become more male-dominated is because it's a highly technical field and there are, you know, there's huge amounts of research on uh, why women are less attracted to those kinds of fields and how stereotypes sort of prevent them from identifying with themselves with, with highly technical fields as they grow up and as they start to make career decisions. But I don't think AI should be just a highly technical field. I mean, AI and other technology industries are absolutely transforming the world at the moment and they are facilitating immense social change. So to me, you know, the answer to so much of this is to bring the social sciences and the humanities right into the fold of AI, not see it as a kind of a separate discipline that can even just provide some input and some helpful feedback, but be right in there in terms of what the field actually, how the field is defined, you know, and, and what it's, objectives and its um I guess its purpose in the world is so um yeah that I mean that's certainly where I sit now I'm trying to sort of you know as as I said at the beginning I've moved into the faculty of IT at Monash University um just recognition of 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 that university and many others now that are bringing social sciences into their faculties rather than just collaborating across disciplines and look a number of people uh, another number of companies are starting to do this too bringing in gender experts and social scientists and humanities scholars, ethics experts, for example, right into the core of their business. But uh, I think there's a lot more that we could do there. And I think we've got a long way to go as well to see those disciplines uh, as part of what AI is in its transformation of the world. But as you say, just at least that it's being recognised and then that you're being bought into it, that's already a good start because um, it, it's quite a complex subject. Like they, 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 It's like an onion that you're peeling, layer after layer after layer, then you just think you've, you've solved one thing, then there's another thing that you have to address. That's right, absolutely. Um, and, you know, AI is, uh, it really is amazing, you know, kinds of things mm-hmm. that it's doing, but it also has huge ethical and social questions and, and issues raised around it. And what I think we want to avoid is a situation where, ethicists and, and social scientists and humanities scholars are brought in once the technical solution has been designed or or once it's being rolled out to sort of evaluate its effects in the world. We want those That's people too late. Yeah. yeah. We want them right at right at the beginning. Yeah. To even think about what it is that we need, what it mm. is that we should be aiming for and aspiring towards and how we should be building systems. So um that's why I think that this change is necessary and it's starting, as I said, but there's more we can do. Well, it's great to hear that you're there and I do agree with you. It's, it's the genie's out of the bottle, so to speak, when if you've already designed something, like what what does it help bringing you in then? Because, um, yeah, that, that's just softening the edges to go, okay, well, now we needed to, we actually needed to do this, but we actually what we needed is years as they call it from the get-go. That's right. So now... The, the the absolutely fantastic thing is that you've just won the inaugural woman in um, artificial intelligence Australia New Zealand the innovation award category like just so such congratulations because I believe um, there there were a lot of entries in in the awards um, night that uh, Andrew Miller uh, did. What does this recognition mean for you? Firstly, and then just secondly, I know you've picked up another award just just I think a week or two after that one as well. Yeah, thank you. It is a wonderful recognition and also a wonderful initiative, I think, that these awards exist. And so I'd just like to also thank everybody who's involved in making them happen. So the second award was the Women in Technology, so no, Women Leading Technology Awards, which is run by um, a company called B&T. And um, I won the Research and Education category for that award as well. So yes, it's been a it's been a, um, a couple of months of celebration, which has been really fantastic, um, not just of myself, but of many fantastic other women who are working uh, and leading in the technology and also the AI industries. Uh, and also quite strange after, you know, months of being locked down last year to kind of go out to award dinner 
sisters. And <laughs> so it was a weird, very strange time, but um, really fantastic to be part of. So, you know, really the awards, um, they mean to me is a recognition of everything I've just been talking about in the sense that um, I have felt quite separate from the technology and the AI industries probably until this recognition or until these, these awards. Um, I've been, you know, it's one thing to say that you're working in the fields of AI and technology, even though you haven't got degrees or background in that area, as I don't. Uh, it's another thing to be actually formally recognised for those achievements by somebody else. Um, and also, I think that's an endorsement of um, from you know, the organisers and the judges of those, those awards that, you know, agreeing with me, essentially, um, that the social sciences and the humanities belong in IT and AI and that, um, yeah, we need more people like me, um, which I know there's, there's quite a few already, but um, there can always be more of us sort of working at this intersection and not seeing ourselves as outsiders, but actually being recognised as insiders in these disciplines and these industries. Uh, I'm just again, congratulations. I think it's absolutely phenomenal. Um, I know you were up against the competition as well. And, um, <clears throat> you know, as you mentioned, Yolanda, if, if you're not doing the work and it's not just women doing the work, there would be men doing the work as well in this field. Um, if it's not highlighted and brought to the fore, then where does it ever get integrated? So, you know, to your point of being a specialist or not having a degree in it, you know, you've got a degree that's very relevant to it. It's not in AI, but I don't think it needs to be in AI. And I mean, if you if we were all waiting for everyone to have degrees and everything, we'll never get anything done because it just simply doesn't work that way. I mean, you bring your expertise of your field in and it's very relevant to, to AI and the robotics industry. That's right. One of the things um, I'm quite excited about at the moment in my role, so I'm also the Associate Dean for Equity, Diversity and Inclusion in my Faculty of IT. Uh, and we obviously have a fairly strong focus on girls and women um, coming into the IT fields as an underrepresented group. And one of the things that I'm really excited about is um, the numbers of women that we have doing double degrees in, yeah. uh, across a number of fields. But, you know, for me, the passion is obviously in arts, which is where sociology and many other social sciences and humanities have their home. Uh, and I think that's just such a fantastic uh, thing to be seeing happening, that more young people or more students uh, are doing these double degrees uh, across multiple fields that are just going to provide such essential skills for these industries as they continue to make their mark in the world and, and affect all this social change. Yeah, I believe Monash is one of the few universities that actually offers the double degrees. Um, I was actually at a lunch yesterday with uh, the Dean of Engineering, Professor Elizabeth Croft was speaking. Of course, she wants more engineering students and more engineering women, which is fine. Like we all want what we want. But I do, you know, I look at our, our, at the, the amounts of women in um, the STEM, science, technology, um, engineering and maths. I, I think they should put stream because then it's STEM um science technology engineering robotics arts as well like the stream you know we can make an acronym because it's a holistic way of looking at it because no one actually isolate no one operates in, in in silos so the more we can combine all these fields together the the better um, basis you have for making decisions and going forward and and creating things yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously you have to specialise somewhere and you can't do, yeah. do everything, but I think increasingly people are looking for graduates with skills across multiple areas. I mean, even within our IT degrees now, there's an emphasis, you know, it's not just, you don't just learn the, the technical skills. There's, there is a focus on, you know, all the things that we've been talking about today as well. And um, I think that's a, a trend more broadly as well in, in how, degrees are being structured and, um, and delivered across Australia and probably internationally as well. But having those, having those kind of extra disciplines or those extra mm. uh, areas of expertise, I think is also, yeah, it's just going to be so fantastic for, for, the, for these industries and, and how they approach designing these kinds of technologies. 
Listen, I think it's a it's a fantastic time to be in academia. Actually, you know, it's very exciting what the universities are doing. Um, I think the thought leaders, certainly the people that I've spoken to and come across, you you're inspiring. Um, I think if if you the lecturers that our, our youngsters are looking up to, then they're in good hands and they and they're going to do amazing things because university at the end of the day is there to teach you to how to think. Not what to think, but you need to think. And and if you can come out of a university and go, look, I've I've covered all these range of subjects, but I can actually think. I can go and sit there and I can um, construct a good argument about why something works or doesn't work. And I think your job is done because, you know, um, it's it's not just parrot feeding kids stuff to learn. Like those days are gone now in terms of education. Absolutely. It's all about continuous learning and, you know, you come out almost realizing how little you know yeah and I feel like that actually in academia now like the more I know the more I don't know it's very humbling and it's also it's good to feel that way that yeah um, recognize where your strengths are and also recognize that there is other expertise out there that you can draw on through other people or or through you know going on and doing more learning yourself but having that inquisitive mind having those analytical skills you know that's always going to leave you in good stead yeah, and I, and I think going like for the generation today where you maybe many, many years ago, you qualified at one thing and that was it and then you were finished. It, it doesn't really work like that today because you think you've got a job in one industry and things change and you have to you have to be adaptable. And I think, if you know, I speak to a lot of kids and I go like, if, if nothing else, be adaptable and, and keep an open mind. Don't don't discount like science subjects because you think you're not interested in because you just never know when you're going to need these subjects. That's right. Yeah. And, and we're, we're also doing a lot of work with schools now as well um, through our outreach programs, as are a number of organisations, great organisations in Australia, actually, who are you know trying to break down these stereotypes about what girls should do and what boys should do, but also what these disciplines actually teach you or what these degrees teach you I mean these stereotypes about IT just being kind of like a geek paradise you know we've got to get rid of those and and I that that's something that we're working really hard on because you know increasingly as you mentioned IT and and other disciplines they're not just about rote learning how to you know design or build or code something or make an algorithm or whatever it's about how we can actually deliver some form of social good in the world yeah um that's actually our faculty's mission, actually, is, yeah. is um, AI for uh, technology for, for, um, for social good. good. So, yeah. you know, and that, that has appealed to, to everyone, I think, and that's, that's really where we need to be going. Oh, listen, I, you, um, you know, I listened to you and I, I listened to Professor Croft yesterday and I thought, oh, if I was just at the start of my career, I'd be going and doing this and this and this. Um, I want to say, fortunately, I'm not because I'm not going to be doing that. Yeah, I was thinking, you know, maybe in the like I can maybe pick up a subject and come and sit there and learn something and not necessarily for a whole degree, but just a subject. Like, I can just go and learn extra. I think that would be great. Or you just become an academic like me and then you're a permanent student. <laughs> no, no, no. That's not... <laughs> so, Yolandi, do you have a mentor? Do you, do you believe it's important to have one? What do you, what's your view on this? I've had different mentors throughout my career. I haven't had sort of one that's kept with me the, or stayed with me the whole time. Certainly, yeah, I, I do have mentors now, but I, I don't have, yeah, as I said, I don't kind of have just one person. I think I would draw on different people for different, different things and look up to people for different you know expertise or advice that they might give me um and and that's come in different ways and different forms you know throughout my career I think it's much more important when you're starting out and um maybe unsure about where to go or where to put your effort and you focus your attention Uh, we have a number of mentoring programs for our um, students and our faculty as well uh including one for uh, called our Women in Technology Alumni Mentoring Program, which is specifically, you know, focused on, on women. So I think that would have helped me when I was starting out, although I wasn't in technology at the time. But, yeah. you know, that's kind of the area. That's, that was, for me, a really critical time in terms of not really knowing even, even what academia was or how to navigate it or what the opportunities would be and also what other pathways there might be, what other career opportunities, because it's, it's so 
it's so diverse now. Um, there's so many different ways you could go with any given degree. I, I think that's, in one ways, that's amazing and a fantastic kind of place to be. Yeah. But I can also understand that it could be quite overwhelming and having someone to kind of help guide you through that would be enormously beneficial. Uh, yeah. Even now, I still, I still need, um, I think everybody does, it's always helpful to have mentoring and coaching. Um, but I'd sort of dip in and out of it, as I said. Yeah. yeah. But it's good that, that you've got it at the university and it's available to, um, to students coming in if they need any help. Yeah, it is. I think it's really good yeah. to have, have that available. So any advice to a 19-year-old? You don't look much older than 19 as I'm sitting here <laughs> watching you, but like, let's assume like you're old. What advice would you give a 19-year-old? Look, I don't have anything in particular. I think I've always been um, extremely motivated and driven and my constant advice to myself is to sort of slow down and <laughs> calm down. And I've, I've got better at that as I've gotten older and um, tried to do less things. I think when I was 19, I embarked on um, a master's degree while I was also working full time, which was quite hectic. I'm not yeah. sure that I would have advised myself <laughs> to do that now. <laughs> <laughs> but I got through it and um, when you look back on these things you don't remember how hard it was do you you just um, you know you, you you remember well usually you remember the better memories I think mm. at those times at least I do yeah sometimes they say ignorance is bliss literally ignorance is bliss because if you knew it you'd go no I'm not doing it <laughs> that's right <laughs> so any closing thoughts that you'd like to leave our listeners with um and second to that, can they email you if they've got any other questions that they'd like to, they'd like to meet you in person or anything like that? Can I um, put your email address out there? You can, yeah, I'm also on LinkedIn. I guess you could put up my social media handles. I'll do that. I, I can't meet with everybody personally. I'm sorry. I just No, don't worry. I don't know why I said time. meet with you because I'm just looking at <laughs> you. I'm going, if they saw, if they could see you, they'd go, they'd want to meet you. <laughs> but yeah, of course, you can put my email up and I'm happy for people to contact with me or connect with me through the um through social media as well which is another way of getting in touch yeah I don't I don't have any particular closing thoughts I mean I I, I do hope that more people can um see themselves having a role a similar role in, in terms of shaping the future of technology uh, and and what you know what outcomes it's going to achieve in the world what kinds of um People, it's going to encourage us all to be. Uh, they're the kinds of questions that really inspire me at the moment and motivate me through my work. So um, I'd love more people to sort of join us on that journey. And I think we we do need, you know, that's that's where we should be heading. And that's um, certainly more to do. Yeah, I like I like your message, Elaine. Like inspire you to be what sort of what sort of person do you need to be? Not just in technology, but just generally speaking you know like that's that's a really positive uh, thought to to close on um you know be the best version of yourself and and don't don't drain resources in the world and don't don't leave a, a negative impact i think you've just expanded out <laughs> lots of <laughs> It's another uh, podcast. Well, <laughs> Listen, I think you're doing an absolutely great job. And um, again, congratulations on your awards. So well, well deserved. And um, I look forward to us uh, speaking again in a, in a couple of months' time to see how your work expanding and then what, what you're doing. Thanks, Nikki. It'd be fantastic. Thank you so much. And to our audience, join me again next week for another episode of Let's Talk Robotics.